You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. Well, good morning. That's great to be here. This worship has been just uh, great. Just been, Brenda and I are just really, um, really excited to be here this weekend for ministry. Um, we're Canadians, working in Chicago, coming back here every once in a while. It sounds kind of cool, but it's really not that cool. And uh, we're really glad to be here this uh, weekend. One of the really thrilling things we get to do is celebrate uh, new church plants. We're working with people who are getting ready to plant churches all around the world with Harvest Bible Fellowship. And, you know, this morning we heard about Steve and Sharon and Randy and Wendy as they're planning. In a few weeks, we're going to be planting another one just outside of Nigeria and Kenya. So things like this, you're part of a, a, a bigger, broader family where things like this are happening all around the world. And uh, we got a unique opportunity to work with some of these people. So we're just uh, really thrilled to do that. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, our hearts are full of thanksgiving today. We have been um, lifting high the name of Jesus and just reminding us of how much you love us and, and how much you care for us, how much you've provided for us through Christ. So, Father, we just give you praise. We're thankful that we, we are, got the opportunity today to just worship you, to pour out from our hearts and just to celebrate you and uh, just to let you know how much we love you. And so now we want to continue that same kind of worship as we place ourselves now underneath the authority of God's word. We believe in your word. We know it's your message to us. And so as we place ourselves, submit ourselves to its authority, Father, we just pray that you would do what only you can do and that you would give us a message from you. You would comfort our weary hearts. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. So that's the last book of the Bible, the first chapter, ninth verse, Revelation chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you, just in the seat ahead of you. You can grab one. Revelation chapter 1 will be beginning in verse 9 in just a moment. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I'm sure you have that when you get older, you begin to realize that some of the things that they told you when you were a child just aren't true. Have you noticed that? Like when I was a kid, adults used to tell me this, you can be anything that you want to be. And I know what they're doing. They're trying to get me to dream, you know, big dream, big dreams, all that kind of stuff. But eventually, somewhere along the line, you begin to realize that that's not true. Um, how many of you have ever dreamed of being an astronaut when you were a child? Put your hand up. Okay, there's a few people. Uh, any of you turn out to be astronauts? Yeah. Many of us in this room probably at one point in time thought that we were going to become professional athletes. Somewhere along the line, we began to realize that, mm, that's, no, I just, can't, I just can't will myself to be anything that I want to be. Um, truth is, you, that's just not true. And when you become more mature, likewise, when you become more mature in your faith, uh, you realize that some of the thoughts that you might have had before you became a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe when you just first became 
a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe uh, those weren't all that correct either. For example, sometimes when I talk to people and they talk about, wow, I, you know, I've come to, Jesus promises this thing called an abundant life, right? Who, who wants an abundant life in Christ? Everybody wants an abundant life in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, that's exactly what you want. We all want to have this sense of abundance in Christ, and that's exactly what it's like to live with Christ. It's, it's the abundant life. But the abundant life that Jesus promises is not easy life. It doesn't mean all problems disappear. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it's not an invitation to go to the beach and hang out. Have you noticed that? Have you? Um, Following Jesus is always the best life. But it's not always the easiest life. In fact, as it turns out, when you follow Jesus, if you're really going to follow Jesus, your faithfulness to Jesus will be challenged. At some point, all followers of Jesus will face this. And I'll look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to read verse 9 and see what happened to the Apostle John. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you're going to, we're going to dissect this verse. If you're going to underline anything or circle anything, look at the phrase, or these two words, in Jesus. Right in the middle of the verse, it says, in Jesus. That is, he's saying here, anyone that has come, comes to faith in Jesus... This is what you're going to experience. This is what, is what it is to be in Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, he says, I'm your brother. We have this relationship now because we're in Jesus. But he says, we're also partners. We're experiencing some, some things that are exactly the same. And do you notice what those three things are? Right? They're different, but they're all connected. What are they? The first one is what? tribulation, the second one is the kingdom, and the third thing is patient endurance. So, if you're in Jesus, that is you have this relationship with Jesus Christ. You have come to a point in your life where you recognize that He is your Savior, that He's died on the cross for your sins, that He was buried, that He rose again. You've repented of your sin, you've confessed your sin before him, you've come running to him as the the one who can meet all of your real deep heart needs, and you've entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're in Jesus, here's some of the things you begin to experience. You experience kingdom. That's a pretty cool word, isn't it? Kingdom. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is where the king reigns. Jesus is the king. He's the one that rules over all things. He's become the ruler over your heart. And in that way, in that way we, we live in Christ's kingdom. We, we live in it now, but we also anticipate it to, in its fullness in the future. It's something that is now, but it's also something that is not yet, something that we anticipate in the future. The kingdom kind of represents the best part of this equation. It's like, yes, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of, of being with Jesus. I want to be part of being in his kingdom. But you notice the other two words that are surrounding kingdom? What's the first one? It's called tribulation. So if you're in Jesus, you have this relationship with Jesus. John says, 
We're, we're brothers. We have this partnership, and we're all part of the same kingdom, he says, but we're also experiencing tribulation, or you could just translate that word suffering. The last time I checked, suffering equals pain. It hurts. In other words, when you're in Jesus, there are going to be times when you're going to experience pain. Clearly, being in Jesus is not about everything just being okay. And then, of course, because of that, we experience patient endurance. It's like a, a, a backpack that's full of rocks that you just have to carry around with you. You're, you're underneath the weight and the load. There are these times in our lives when we follow Jesus that our faithfulness to Jesus is challenged. At some point, all followers face this. Now, look at what it was like for John, the Apostle John. He says, uh, I'm your brother, your partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on this island called Patmos. Now, the island of Patmos is not a vacation destination. Right? It's, it's not an all-inclusive resort. Some of you perhaps have just come back from one of those. This is not the island of Patmos. It's not a cruise destination. Right? This is where the Apostle John had been exiled by the Roman government. Right? He'd been sent there because he was doing some things that they didn't like. And the island of Patmos is a quite a deserted kind of island. They used to play, send people that they exiled there to move rocks. They would have a pile here, and they would say, and exile, I want you to move that pile and start another pile over there. And the next day, you would do the same thing again. Not like a, a real fun kind of experience. And this is what he's experiencing. He's experiencing this. The churches that he's writing to are experiencing persecution for their faith as well by the Roman government. Why is this happening? Well, do you see what he says? Why this happened for him? He says, I'm on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I've been preaching God's word and I've been telling people about Jesus Christ and so the government sent me to this island called Patmos. What's he doing? He's just being faithful. He's doing what God asked him to do. And guess what happens? He experiences life in the kingdom while he's also experiencing suffering and having to go through patient endurance. All he's being is being faithful. He's just being faithful. He's being faithful. He's being faithful to God, doing what God wants him to do. And that leads to suffering and, and this need for patient endurance. You say, well, that doesn't sound very fair. It's, it's not about what's fair. It's about the reality of this, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air. You and I live in a culture that celebrates civility over conviction, promotes tolerance over truth, celebrates the agendas of others as more important than the agenda of God. True? That's true. And when you live in that kind of culture, there will always be a growing negative reaction to the authority of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You just study throughout church history, and you see that to be true. Whenever you live in a place 
where conviction is downplayed, where truth is downplayed, where the agenda of God is tossed to the side, there's always a growing negative reaction to the authority of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And if you're going to be faithful with the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus while you live within that kind of culture, you can experience the wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air, and you might just end up having to suffer for Christ. Add to that in a world that we live that is full of the consequences of sin where health tests come back and the news is not always good. Where our relationships are not always perfect. Some of you may have already experienced that today. Where husbands and wives feel that just they're not on the same page. Where parents and children are in conflict with one another. In a world where we have jobs that not, don't always leave us that fulfilled. Add all of that to this, and you realize that when you follow Jesus, your faithfulness to Jesus is challenged, because the things that God uses to strengthen and prove our faith, these things that we experience, Satan himself attempts to use those to tear down our faith. And so when you follow Jesus, your faithfulness to Jesus is going to be challenged, and that's why when your faith is challenged, it's so important that you know where Jesus is. And also who he is. Look at verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So it's Sunday. It's Sunday morning. It's a, uh, Sunday, maybe like this Sunday. He's on the island of Patmos. He's probably in a time of worship before the Lord. And he says, I was in the Spirit. This is, and, and, and he's... He's just he's worshiping the Lord, and God gives him this amazing vision. A picture is worth how many words? A thousand words. That's kind of like an old saying, right? It's probably worth more than a thousand words. It's worth a lot of words. And so God gives him, in the midst of his trial and his suffering, God gives him this amazing picture of where Jesus is. Right? Listen. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We must possess an unwavering certainty of where Jesus is. It's absolutely imperative that we must possess an unwavering certainty of where Jesus is. And while suffering for his faith, God gives the Apostle John this clear picture of where Jesus is. Where is he in this picture? You see it in verse 13? Where is he? And in the what? In the midst of the lampstands, you say, whoa, whoa, back up, you know, vision time, all that kind of stuff. I, what, what's he talking about? Lampstands, seven lampstands, what's that all about? Well, that's right from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, where in the temple of God, they had these lampstands, and the lampstands represented the, the kind of like the presence of God within the temple. Now, these just introduced us to seven churches. There's seven lampstands. Now go down to verse 20 here in chapter 1. You'll see what 
the lampstands represent. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the what? Seven churches. So he's just been told he's supposed to write everything that he sees to these seven churches. And then the first thing he sees is what? Seven lampstands. Each one of these lampstands represents each one of those churches. Each one of those churches is about to or is already going through persecution because of their faith. Now tell me, where is Jesus? He's in the middle. In this picture, he's in the middle. He's not just above and beyond. We know that Jesus Christ is above and beyond all things. But he's not just above and beyond. He's not on the outside of these lampstands looking in, but he's right in the middle. He's right, right in the middle. Um, Brenda and I are thankful for our kids. Our, our children are, are adult kids now, and uh, they're both married. Christine is married to Joe. They live in Orangeville, and um, John is married to Julie. They live in Louisville, and they're all doing super great. We're just so grateful to God. They love the Lord. They're moving on with God. They're, everything is great. But, you know, five years ago, I could not have said that. Five years, I couldn't have said that. Um, in 2010, actually just five, like five years ago, this time of year, uh, we were just busy doing what God had asked us to do, trying to be faithful with what God had called us to do. We were pastoring a church, and with all the joys that go along with pastoring, there's lots of joy. You need to know that. There's just lots of joys when you pastor a church, lots of joys. And there's also lots of responsibilities that go along with pastoring a church, too. Please pray for your pastors. Okay, it's really, really important that you do that. But we were just experiencing all of the joys and all the responsibilities that go along with pastoring, and at the same time, we found ourselves driving our daughter down to Toronto to admit her into Toronto General Hospital. At the age of just over 20 years of age, uh, she had an eating disorder. And it had reached um, critical stage. Maybe, parents, you can relate to this. There is absolutely nothing more that I could do. Nothing more. And it's amazing the things that I remember from that period five years ago. I remember the, when we admitted her into the hospital. I remember things about that. The room we went into to admit her was, um, there was no natural light. There were ceiling tiles missing in the ceiling. It was all like f the old fluorescent tube kind of lighting. Uh, there were wires going over the, all over the place. Let's just say it didn't, it didn't scream welcome uh, when we kind of walked into that place. I can, like, like it was yesterday, I can remember the moment they put the admission bracelet around her wrist. Um, I remember taking that long elevator ride up to the floor that she was going to be staying on, and I really, I, I definitely remember the moment that we handed her off. And I, I, as a father, I handed my daughter off to someone 
to care for her that I had, I just, I didn't even know this person. I remember how empty that felt, how painful that felt. I can remember the times of great tears. I remember how exhausting it all, it was just, it was just exhausting. The questions that kept flooding into my mind, questions like this, God, where are you? Um, what are you doing? I don't deserve this. All these kinds of questions that just come streaming into your mind and into your heart. And, and some of you here in this room, you, just me telling that story takes you back to a moment, and maybe it's not even five years ago. Maybe it's just like a week ago. Maybe it's like right now. Maybe it's a, just a really recent kind of memory. How in the world do you possess an unwavering certainty in where Jesus is when your faith is being challenged? Well, as was true then for me, I believe it's true now for me and probably for you as well. I believe this is the case. You, you have to confront the lies that come into your mind, into your heart during this time. Lies like this. God, has, God is abandoning me, or is he's, he's abandoned me. Um, God is not an absentee parent that abandons his children. Joshua 1.5 says, I will be with you, and I will not leave you or forsake you. He's in the middle. You see? He's in the middle. He's in the midst. He doesn't abandon us or, or this lie. God's distant from me. Maybe you don't feel like he's abandoned you. Maybe you feel like he's just he's distant from you. He's just uh, that much far apart. And I, I understand how that feels. It can sometimes feel like that. Sometimes it feels like things are just bouncing off the roof and coming back, Right? But God is not like the general in the army who is back at headquarters working out the plan while you're on the front line of your life. He's not like that. Joshua 1.9 says, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or maybe this lie. Look, Maybe God's just hiding from me. Maybe he's close by, but he's just choosing to hide from me. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Where's Jesus? What does this vision tell us? Where is he? He's in the what? He's in the middle. He's in the middle. Right here, right now, in the middle of the struggle, no matter how dark, how difficult, how big it seems to be, he is right here, right now, in the middle. And when your faith is being challenged like that, where Jesus is, is of absolute importance. He is in the middle. Confront the lies. Confront the lies. He is in the middle. And so when our faith is challenged, where he is is important, but also who he is is important. 
We can possess an unwavering certainty in where Jesus is, but we also have to practice an undivided confidence in who Jesus is. In other words, while Jesus is in the middle, what's he like? What's he like while he's in the middle? And this is beautiful. The beautiful thing about this passage of Scripture is it answers that question really clearly. Now, what I want you to do is I just want you to let God's word wash over you like a waterfall for your soul now. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13, right through the end of verse 18. It says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like, uh, were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hates. This is who Jesus is when he is in the middle of your life. Do you, let me say that again. This is who he is, what he is like. When he is right there in the middle of your life, even in the midst of all of the mess and the suffering and the pain, this is what he is like. And, and in this vision, there are three titles that are given to Jesus Christ. The first one is this, one like a son of man, or in other words, he is the king. He is the king. The son of man title comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the ancient of days gives the Son of Man authority over all kingdoms. So get, get this picture. Okay, while you're in the middle, while you're going through the suffering, while your faith is being pushed to its limits, Jesus is in the middle with you, standing right there, and he's standing there as the king of all kings over all kingdoms of the world. He certainly looks the part, does he not? Look at how it describes what he looks like. He, he's, he's wearing this sovereign clothing. He's sovereign. He's wearing a king's robe in verse 13. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He's wearing ruler clothing. He's sovereign. Verse 14 tells us that he's a wise king. His hair is white, like white wool, white as snow. In other words, he has pure wisdom. He knows everything. He knows everything, and nothing catches him off guard. He's a discerning king in verse 14. His eyes are like a flame of fire, purifying and penetrating. He looks through everything. He sees all the junk and burns it away in our lives. He's the strong and steady king in verse 15. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. He's strong. He's firm. He's steady. His strength has been tested and refined through the struggle of the cross. He's a powerful king in verse 15. His voice is like the roar of many waters. You ever been on the Maid of the Mist? 
Most people that live near one of these great wonders in the world haven't done that. How many of you done Made of the Mist before? Okay, like 20. I've never done it before either, but I just want to imagine if we took the Made of the Mist, that little boat, you know, went down to the right to the edge of where the fall, all that water's coming down in the falls. You don't want to get too close, but if, let's say you were really, really close, and you were just, all this water was going, kind of, do you think it would be difficult to have a conversation with the person beside you? Be like really, really difficult. Why would it be really, really difficult? Because of the power of the water going over. And this is exactly, he's saying, look, this is what Jesus is like. He's a powerful king. His voice is like the roar. It's like the roar of many waters. It's inspiring. It's powerful. He's in control, he says in verse 16. In his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the messengers or the angels that are overseeing these churches. It's in his right hand. The right hand. It's, the reason why it's right hand is because in Scripture, the right hand of God is always the powerful hand. Psalm 16, verse 8. In other words, it's like, it's like he's just through picture, he's just pointing this out to us. Hey, I got it all right here. Right here. I got it all right here. And then he says, he's a king that judges in verse 16. Out from his mouth, okay, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus Words cut through all the ridiculousness and nonsense of our lives. He judges us and others with his words. His words are cutting. They cut through any resistance. They divide good from evil. His words overcome any kind of rebellion. And then he caps it all off in verse 16. He says, he says he's a strong and brilliant king. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Another version says it's like the noonday sun. You can't, you can't look at it, right? You can't stare at the noonday sun. Why? Because it's, it's too brilliant. Where's Jesus? Where is he? He's in the middle. And when he is in the middle, he is king. He's the king. Nothing feeble about him. There's nothing weak about him. You see a picture of him in, in his full out strength. He is king. He is king. He says this in verse 17 that he is also eternal. He, sa he says, I am the first and the last. I'm eternal. He's the one who was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. He is, he is the eternal creator and sovereign over all of human history. And if he is the eternal creator and sovereign all of, over human history, certainly he is also sovereign over my story and over your story as well. He's eternal. He's the one that always has been and the one who always will be. I mean, that's, is that not like mind-boggling? It's always has been, always will be. Always has been, always will be. He's like he controls... The whole thing, he's, got the, he's the author, and the, he's just in charge of everything, of all of history, and, and so it must be that he's in control of mine too. He's the first and the last, and then he's the victorious one in verse 18 when he says, and I am the living one. 
He says, I died. If you don't know why he died, look at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1. And it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the victorious one. He died. He faced the greatest enemy of life itself, and death took him captive. And he did that for you. He did that for you because of the sin problem that you have in your life that separates you from the love of God. God loved us so much that, that his, his son, Jesus Christ, was willing to die for us, to free us from our sins by his blood. There's absolutely no doubt, absolutely zero doubt that he loves us, that he loves you, that he has your best interest at heart. He's died for you. But not only did he die, you see back, back here in, the, in, in this passage, not only did he die in verse 18, but he says, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He burst out from the prison and of death and was resurrected to life. He conquered death. He's the firstborn of the dead. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. It's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, he, he willingly sacrificed himself and was taken captive by death itself. He conquers death. He becomes victorious over the grave. He does that for you and me. Can I get a, like, amen on that? <laughs> he does that for, for you and me, and it says, because of that, it says in verse 18, he holds the keys. He has all authority. He is the one who's in control of whoever gets locked up and whoever gets liberated. And as we express faith in Christ, he liberates us because he holds the keys. Someone here this morning... Maybe it's you. But you are carrying like a massive weight around you, on your back. And you're trying to handle it all by yourself. You've never submitted yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. Maybe even up to this moment, you never even thought that you had need of a Savior. A need for someone to actually save you. But you're dead in your sin. And because you're dead in your sin, Jesus Christ died for you. That so, so through faith you could experience life in him. He has the keys that can liberate you. It's, you, you, can't, you can't solve this problem by yourself. You need to enter into relationship with, this, with your Savior so that he can be in the middle of your life and he can, be, he can be your eternal, victorious king as you face the challenges of your life. Why not now? Why not confess your sin? Why not confess your need for your Savior, why not? Why not just? Why not right now? Just respond to His invitation in your life and say, 
I, yes, that's exactly what I need. I need a relationship with the eternal, victorious King, Jesus Christ. You stop and you think about it. Where's Jesus? He's in the middle. And what is he like? He's the eternal, victorious king while he is in the middle. You know what that means? That means that, means that he is greater. He is greater. There is no circumstance, there's no trouble that is greater than Jesus Christ. Nothing. It also means that he has a plan. Um, we struggle with that at times because some of us in this room really want to know the plan, right? We really want to know the plan. We want to be able to work the plan. We need to know what that plan is. And, and sometimes we just don't know God's plan. His thoughts are so much broader and bigger and more wonderful and more glorious than ours. We may not understand his plan, but that doesn't take away from the truth that he is the one who's in control. It means that he will judge. He will, he will vindicate the injustices of your life. He is the victorious one. Jesus has won. He will win. Right? He is the victorious one. And it means this. He's enough. He is enough. See, where he is and who he is is really all that matters. Where he is and who he is is really all that matters. And whatever you might be going through, whatever the challenges that are that you are facing, he is right in the middle. He is the eternal, victorious king. He's in the middle, and while he's in the middle, he's the eternal, victorious king. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know, in 1904, at the age of 16, William Borden who was heir to the Borden fortune. If you're, if you're around my age group, you know what that means. Some of you might not know what that means, but that means he had a lot of money. He was a really rich young man. His parents gave him, in 1904, for graduating high school, they gave him a trip around the world. And so as he traveled by boat, by ship around the world, he, he visited different places, and when he was in Asia, he gained a burden for the people of Asia and he really sensed that God was placing a call on his life to be a missionary. And so upon return, he gathered some of his friends and told them about his newfound burden, this sense of calling that he had in his life to be a missionary. And you know how they responded to him? This is what they said to him. Uh, you're just throwing your life away. Why in the world would you want to be a missionary? I can't, what do you think? You're like a Borden. I mean, you have all these other opportunities, and you want to be a missionary? You're just like, you're, you're just throwing it all, all away. And his response to his, what his friend said was to write these two words in his Bible. He wrote these two words, no reserves. No reserves. He then went on to study at Yale University, and he found that this calling that God had placed in his life, this burden now narrowed onto Muslims in China. And you can imagine being a board and upon him about to graduate from Yale University, he was offered 
all many, many, many great jobs. His dad offered him great jobs. Other people offered him great jobs. And he turned every single one of them down. Every single one of them down, right? He had written down no reserves. And so when he graduated from Yale, he wrote two more words in his Bible. No retreats. No turning back, right? No retreats. After graduating from Yale, he went to study at Princeton Seminary, and then when he graduated from Princeton, he began his journey to China. As he was going towards China, he stopped in Egypt to study Arabic because that was important for him to do that as he was going to minister to Muslims. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month of that diagnosis, he was dead at the age of 25. If ever, if ever there's a story that leads you to ask questions like, why God? It's that one. They brought his body back to the United States and all of his effects. And they began to flip through his Bible. And of course, as they flipped through his Bible, they found those famous words that were written in his Bible. No reserves, no retreats. But he had written two more words in his Bible just before he died. And they were these. No regrets. How could he do that? How, how in the world could he write words like no regrets? Well, when your faith is challenged, where Jesus is, and who he is, where he is, is all that matters. Let's pray together. Father, I just um, so need your grace right now. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are in the midst of great suffering, great trials, great weights in their lives. They're just trying to be faithful to you. They're trying to do what is right. And God, you need to extend your grace right now so they can possess an unwavering certainty in where you are right now. I pray for someone here this morning who has not yielded their life to the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Who's trying to do life in their own power and their own strength. And, and all you want to do is be in the middle. But God, extend your grace. Watch these hearts that are open to you as they stretch forth towards you, Father. Just meet them as we know that you only can and bless them as only you can. And Where there is no life, birth life. Where there is death, bring eternal life, new life.
Where there is sin, bring forgiveness. So I, God, just extend your grace so that we can possess an unwavering certainty where you are because you are with us, you are in the middle, you're in the middle with us, even in the pain, even in the trouble, you are with us. And then God, extend, extend your grace, extend your grace so that we can practice an undivided confidence in who you are. You are the eternal victorious king. Yes, you are. Extend your grace to those who are under immense pressure today, who are feeling the pain of this moment. Remind them again. Show them in your grace and your love that you are the one who is eternal. You are the one who is victorious. You are the one who is sovereign. Because where you are and who you are is all that matters. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.